0: song means it's time for the davis garden show this is don shore
1: and this is lois richter on a bright beautiful sunny davis day in july of 2020
0: it is july 15th as we record this program it will be broadcast on july 16th 2020 and the temperature right now the sacramento executive airport is 93 degrees there's a south wind coming in about eight miles an hour that they're recording over there and I'm told it's lightly breezy in Davis and here outside of Dixon. The wind is coming in about 15 miles an hour, very strongly coming in off the Delta. It's something I like to do, for those of you who do live in this area and are wondering about the heat and how long it's going to prevail into the evening. If you go to the national weather service, you'll look at more local weather, more local weather link. You can click on look at Fairfield. If you know this area, you know that Fairfield is about 30 miles to the West kind of right on the edge of where the coastal influence begins. And if it's windy in Fairfield, which it usually is in the evening, and the wind speed there is anywhere from 10 to 20 miles an hour, and the temperatures are already lower than in the valley, then we know the Delta breeze is gonna come in and cool things off. It's already happening, and it's only about 4.30 in the afternoon. So normally I check that 6, 7 in the evening to see when I'll be able to open the windows. Looks like that delta breeze is really going to dominate for the next day or so here in the Sacramento Valley, or at least our side of the valley. It's going to be 92, 93 degrees on Thursday. Night temperatures in the upper 50s. Friday will be 91. Bumping up for the weekend into the 90s, 97 on Saturday, 97 on Sunday. Night temperatures cooling down to just about 58 to 60 degrees. Monday, sunny with a high near 94. Tuesday, 92. Wednesday, 92, which is almost exactly the average high temperature at this time of year. There is a huge, and I mean huge, dome of high pressure that's built up over the Four Corners region, which is the region where New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and Utah, right, I think? I'll come come together. I've been there. It's the middle of nowhere. Let me tell you, there's not much going on there except the fact that you can take a picture of your kids with one foot and one hand in each of four states uh, in the middle of nowhere. It gets really, really hot down there. And that four corners high, as they're calling it at the National Weather Service, going through next week, will dominate the weather pattern over many parts of Northern California, at least early on in the forecast period. So the upper valley. Uh, the interior parts of the Sacramento Valley and the San Joaquin Valley, especially down in the south southwestern part of the state, and all of that area is going to be quite warm. Uh, temperatures are expected to be well above average down there. But we fortunately are going to be continuing to get this coastal influence. It looks like predominating on our side of the Sacramento Valley, so we'll have a dramatic range from mid to upper 90s in the Davis area, whereas if you head in 20, 30 miles inland or go further up the valley, you'll be well into the low hundreds, 100 to 105 degree range in the northern Sacramento Valley, even higher as you get further north. This is one of those times of year when we're gonna be very appreciative of that delta breeze that cools things off so nicely in the evening for us. Gets into one of the questions we're getting a lot right now. My most common question at my garden center is, why isn't my fill in the blank fruiting most commonly tomatoes, but the question also has been coming up about zucchini. A week or so ago, we were hot. We were in the upper 90s. We hit 100 a couple of times. And in those temperature conditions, the tomato blossom will simply fall off. So with zucchini, it just doesn't pollinate properly. Same goes, we believe, for peppers and some of the other things in your garden. And then when we have these spells like we're getting now, uh, you should get fruit set About half the time here during the summer, we get suitable conditions for fruit set on tomatoes and zucchini and things like that. And that's enough for us to get very good yields here. But when you are going out and seeing a blossom in the morning, it's a hot afternoon, and you go out the next morning, that blossom has just fallen off. That's simply the temperature affecting the pollination of the flower. Good news, plenty of time still for us to have fruit developing on all of those things.
1: Well, some people Let's aren't having th- any problems with having tomatoes. In fact, they have so many tomatoes that they're trying to figure out what to do with them. And we have a, a fellow who wrote in to us and talked about tomato juice. You want me to yeah. read that we one? Have,
0: yeah, he's, li- he's a listener in Texas, and um, he's got a surplus of tomatoes. I already got a great recipe from him a year or so ago for okra pilaf. And oh, he's is- not
1: the same fellow. <laughs> Yes.
0: Yes. (laughs) Kent is now telling us what to do with our surplus of tomatoes. Go ahead and read that. I appreciate it. Okay, so
1: this is Kent. He says, dear Don and Lois, for all those extra tomatoes, and if you like tomato juice, here's a delicious and fairly easy recipe for making tomato juice. I add some garlic to mine, but I suppose you could add about anything you wanted. I've made it many times, and it is amazing how you can taste the difference in the juice from different varieties of tomatoes. My favorite juice is from that... Costoluto Genovese that Don likes so much. This was my first year growing them and they did great for me in the garden. In fact, the Juliet and the Costoluto are the only two tomato varieties that I have still producing in my garden. I grew one Costoluto tomato that weighed 11.1 ounces and most Mm -hmm. of them have probably been around four ounces. Anyway, thanks for your podcast. And hopefully this recipe will be a return of kindness for what you have done in the past. So.
0: Yeah, it's a great, great recipe that he linked, and you'd essentially just uh, blending uh, tomatoes and some, you know, some other. You're making your own homemade V8 juice. My father would do this kind of thing. He loved to come up here and visit when it was tomato season. He was in San Diego, which is a lovely place to garden, but not as optimal if you're on the coast there for yield and flavor of tomatoes as we are here in the valley, where it's just warmer and we we get more, we get more input to our tomatoes. Our, I think ours have better flavor than. Coastal areas. Far be it for me to you know to be chauvinistic or anything, but I think we got better tomatoes here. Um, but this recipe calls for very ripe garden tomatoes, cored and roughly chopped, and then celery, and onion, and some sugar if you want, and some salt and some black pepper. And here's the last little Philip is the couple of shakes of Tabasco sauce, uh, six to eight drops. Lois, you well, probably from leave Texas. that out, but some people might. might that's yeah. a pepper sauce but there you go it's a little hot and then it's a little spicy you got a little vinegar in it and you just basically blend all that together my father would strain it Mm -hmm. force it through a sieve or something like that and then he would just keep it in the refrigerator and drink some every day and i had never much liked tomato juice until we did that and i found myself freezing this and using it in recipes pretty commonly Mm -hmm. through the winter time was actually a great base for soups and stocks and things like that. It's not rich, it's not thick like your tomato puree, but it really adds a great flavor to winter winter stovetop cookery. So thank you very much. And I want to, again, tweak Fred Hoffman a little bit here because every time I mention Costaludo Genovese on the air when I'm on his show. One of my favorite tomatoes, Italian heirloom tomato. He groans and says it gets too soft and he doesn't like it. So we all have our preferences. I think we all can agree on Juliet. That's a phenomenal tomato for almost anywhere you're growing. Anywhere, anywhere you're trying to grow tomatoes, if you have a challenging spot, if you're in one of those climates that just doesn't seem like tomato country, try Juliet because it's a uh, it's a little paste type tomato, it looks like the size of a cherry tomato, the shape of a San Marzano, the shape of an Italian paste tomato. And it's very rich and meaty, really flavorful, at least for us in the Valley. And it was an all America selection when it came out because what that means is it was tested in a wide range of gardens all over the country and did well in a wide range of conditions. So it's a, it's a really good choice for people who are limited for space, people who want an all purpose, little tomato for throwing in salads. It's also meaty enough that you can turn it into puree or cook with it if you want to. So I think both of those, one of the reasons I like to tout them, particularly the Juliet is it's just so adaptable to a wide range of conditions.
1: I'm actually a convert to something called stupiche, which I had never heard of before until somebody mm-hmm. gave me one of those plants this spring and I put it in my garden and I mean my pot in the yard which is it's very nice it has an excellent flavor and not too many seeds it's it's yes. uh, it's very nice and I'm and I'm told that it's a variety that uh, will flower and bloom early and yeah so stupiche.
0: Yeah, it's pronounced Stupice, or Stupice, it's, pre- it's spelled Stupice, S-T-U-P-I-C-E-S-A, Czech, Czech Republic is, I believe, where that came from. And it, it sets early like Early Girl does. It ripens quickly. It also holds and ripens late. And it's, one, it's a hard one to find. You'd have to look around for either the seed early in the season or someone who's growing and selling what you might call heirloom or gourmet-type varieties. Uh, and it will never be a commercial variety because the shoulders of the fruit are a little bit green sometimes, and so that's considered a defect from a commercial standpoint. It's just one of these very good varieties for a wide range of conditions. So we like to put these out there because we know we got listeners all over the place. I could rattle off, you know, 20 varieties that are great in the valley, but this is where tomatoes are grown commercially. So we need to know what are the ones that stretch the season for you or do well in your more difficult environment. Let's say you're growing tomatoes in Seattle. Well, you know, that's a challenging environment for tomatoes. So one thing I would do is ask locally, but if you have a favorite, if you have a variety that's doing well for you, like Ken, let us know. Show at gmail.com. Let's do one of those public service announcement things that we do to, keep uh, keep KDRT as a you know public service as part of what we do. And I'd like to mention some of the organizations and some of the locations and some of the resources that are in the Davis area. And one is Cool Davis, a group which works to inspire the Davis community to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, adapt to climate change, and improve the quality of life for all. Cool Davis projects include neighborhood campaigns challenging Davis residents to adopt energy efficiency measures, Consider greener modes of transportation, reshape the consumption of foods, goods, and services. I happen to know a lot of the folks there. They also have a lot of fun doing all that stuff. For more information or to offer your support, you can email info at cooldavis.org. One of the great programs I should I, I want to mention that uh, we've said before, the folks are getting back on the air and uh, we're, we're seeing more and more of the DJs uh, coming out and getting new program up there. and. Uh, The official statement is that we wish to thank you for tuning into KDRT 95.7 FM here in Davis, where the grassroots grow. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we are doing what we can to bring the freshest radio to your eardrums. Some programmers are able to broadcast from the studio to you live. Some are recording at home, and still others are airing shows from their archives. We will continue to broadcast the freshest radio we can, while helping to keep our community safe. We hope you enjoy the broadcast. We appreciate your support of KDRT 95.7 FM, Davis, California, and KDRT.org online. And one of the folks that is back on the air is DJ Dirk Twang Fang. Features outlaw country old and new featuring the folks who sowed the hard edge musical seeds for what we today call Americana as well as the newer artists who continue the tunes and outlaw ethos forward. George Jones, Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard, Lucinda Willems, Steve Earle, Dwight Yoakam, Ray Wiley Hubbard, Billy Joe Shaver. Americana music didn't just show up one day. It has deep and varied country music roots. Twang fang. Explores both the originators and the newcomers, checking out a bunch of the music that happened along the way, presently airing on Sunday mornings. To check the replay time, find the archives, or sign up for an RSS feed to have it download automatically to your computer, go to kdrt.org and check the schedule. Go ahead, what have you got Lois?
1: Well, David Art has written in and says, thanks again for last week's comprehensive watering answer. All my veggies are thriving again, except my tomatillos. I have four in a raised bed that are flowering like mad, but I don't have a single fruit. Uh, what's even more maddening is that I have one backup tomatom- tomatillo in my mini greenhouse that i give no love to at all and it has many husks forming. any suggestions should i hand pollinate if so how do i do that
0: i grow tomatillos every year and uh, my experience with them is that they grow very vigorously they start to flower as the other members of the nightshade family do they're closely related to tomatoes and peppers and eggplant and potatoes and things like that but they really don't start setting until much later in the season. I've never really understood the actual reason for that. I do know that, first of all, we were told for years that you have to have two tomatillos, two plants, just two plants, not two different varieties or anything like that in order to get pollination, in order to get the fruit to set. And I had never experienced this, but I had also never carefully only planted one tomatillo. So I did that one year. I Actually, I usually don't have to plant them because if you've ever grown them, some of the fruit will rot on the ground. Some of the seedlings will come up the next year. They kind of naturalize in the your yard. They're one of those kind of plants. But I carefully planted one, remo- removed the second one that was in the pot and hoed out all the seedlings nearby to see what would happen. And the plant grew and it flowered and it grew and it flowered and it set some what appeared to be fruit, but actually no, those husks were actually empty. They were they were just setting without fruit, or they weren't setting, I should say. And the total yield of that plant was about ten percent of what it normally would have been. So there is a structural issue with the flower of the tomatillo that prevents it from pollinating itself. It's an interesting little fact about tomatillos. You plant two right in the same hole is fine. So there's often two in the pot when you buy the plant, leave them together. That's really important in the case of the tomatillo, because apparently if it, it's much like certain varieties of tomatoes, don't worry too much about this, it's a weird exception with certain varieties of tomatoes, that the female part sticks out past the male part. And so it doesn't matter how many bumblebees land on it or how much it vibrates, the pollen isn't where it needs to be in terms of getting on, on the female part of the flower. This is true, curiously, of the current tomato, if you ever grow that one. Um, but the, if bees go to enough flowers, you'll get enough fruit set. So I do know that there is a strange structural pollination issue with tomatillos that doesn't seem to resolve itself until later in the season. Because of what I tend to get on my plants is a very heavy crop late in the season in spite of blossoms from midsummer on. So that's been my observation, and it sounds like it's what you're getting as well. Keep the plants healthy, keep them vigorous. It may be temperature related. It wouldn't surprise me if it were temperature related, because some, uh, if, like tomatoes, if it's above 90 something, it's a good possibility that the pollination isn't happening for that reason. But we've observed this. We don't know the actual cause. My guess is it's a structural issue with the flower combined with temperatures. But in my experience, I get a whole lot of tomatillos all at once late in the season. And tomatillos are something that I process. You don't typically try, you don't use them in salads, you're not using them that way. They're the kind of thing where, if, when you have a bunch of them, you make a bunch of salsa with them. So I get what I need, but it is typically late in the season. So I think you're just observing the natural pattern of the plant here in the Sacramento Valley or where he is, which is on the East Bay, where it gets about as hot as it does here. Coastal areas, they I may have said earlier, it's quite possible. So if any of you are growing tomatillos in yeah, let's say the whole coastal belt of Southern California or, or, or Northern California in the Bay Area, if you get yield over a longer period of time throughout the summer, we'd be curious about that. So give us your feedback on that. My observation is that it's a late season production, regardless of when it blooms, regardless of how the plant is growing. So I think it's just an observation, not a, not a disorder. Does that okay. make
1: sense? That makes sense. And David, uh, it sounds like these may be the first time you've grown tomatillos. If you have grown them in the past and they've done well, please let us know that. Uh, So he has a second.
0: It's one of of those curious plants that um, uh, there's not very many varieties. Uh, There's two basically that we get. There's the green one and the purple one. They taste the same. Uh, They've never been selected or hybridized all that much, but they're widely used in Mexican cuisine. If you ever order salsa verde, that's made with tomatillos, not tomatoes. People think it's made with green tomatoes, but it's actually made with tomatillos. They have a very special, unique flavor that is kind of uh, tangy, distinctive. They're close cousins of another question that came in, and I don't know if you got this question, but I have it here, which is, um, who was it here? Lynn said, hi Don and Lois, in a future show, could you discuss ground cherries? People in the Midwest seem to love them. I've never heard of them or seen them at the farmer's market. They sound like they would combine well with tomatillo Mm -hmm. for salsa. Not much information in the Western Garden book. Thank you, from Lynn. And Lynn is, I believe, in uh, Sunset Zone 20, Zone 9B, uh, USDA Zone 9B. Yeah, ground cherries, tomatillos are in the genus Physalis, P-H-Y-S-A-L-I-S as are ground cherries. And um, she's right, Midwesterners know ground cherries. The only people who ever asked me for them at my store have moved here from Ohio or Michigan or someplace where apparently they're fairly widely grown. I grew them one year. My feeling was tomatillos are more interesting, and if we can grow tomatillos, why bother with the ground cherries? They're sweet, they're, they look the same, they're more orange when they're ripe, I guess. And they're used for pies and things like that. And they're very, very, very easy to grow. So it's the kind of thing you're not likely to find in a garden center. I've sold them, you know, every summer I might get one flat of them in from one of my wholesalers to sell them. Most people here have no idea what they are. And so a handful of people buy them and the people who do, I start to chat with them because they clearly know what they are, know what to do with them. And they talk about their, how they're used as, in, in desserts. So it's more of a, it's much sweeter, less tart, less tangy. It doesn't have the, the interesting tartness, tart sweet balance that I prefer in that you, you get with the tomatillo. But I agree, they'd be a great thing to add to any salsa because a lot of salsa recipes that I have, and I have a lot of cookbooks from Mexico and places like that, a lot of salsa recipes, they'll add a little fruit just for balance. They'll add apples or quince or unusual, or you know, peaches or whatever, papaya, whatever is ripe. Not lots of it, just enough to, give a little more depth of flavor, perhaps a little tartness or a little sweetness to balance the tomatoes or tomatillos or, or peppers that you're using. And I think they would be great. They look a lot like tomatillo. They grow a lot like a tomatillo. If you do nothing, these are plants that run across the ground like a sprawling shrub, flower heavily, fruit heavily, and the fruit drops when it's ripe. So generally, once you plant them, you'll have them sort of coming up on their own in the future. And they're just one of those incredibly easy plants to grow. But you probably will have to order the seed in January, February, and get it started along with your tomatoes that you're growing to plant out in your own garden because you're not likely to find them in most garden centers. That's been something that's few and far between in California garden centers.
1: Our ground cherries, and, and I understand from being back from the Midwest, ground cherries are called that because they're treated like cherries they you make pies and yeah. things out of them. Yeah. Um, but the the, and they grow on the ground. They Are they uh, uh, growable here or is it too dry for them?
0: Well, they grow fine in the vegetable garden just as tomatillos and tomatoes do. They're basically the same category. I would water them, I'd plant them like your peppers and eggplant where you're watering more than, than just how you do your tomatoes because they're not as deep rooted. Yes, they're very easy to grow. They're one of those things that if you don't confine them, each plant will take up about six feet of space. Uh, And that's probably more space than you want to devote to something which has fairly limited use. But if you put a cage on them, just like with a tomato, you can cage them with a four foot cage and get them at least, you know, more condensed, more concentrated. You'll get plenty of yield. So you can try all these different recipes. Um, The only uses I've seen in cookbooks are used like cherry used like a pie. Yeah. They're just sweetened and to my taste rather mild, but very, very easy to grow.
1: Okay. So uh david did have a second question let me get back up to his email here uh, i have new red po- i have red new potatoes growing in a wine barrel since april they formed flowers about a month ago and something mysteriously ate them all off i did a little <laughs> handing hand digging and potatoes are present so i patiently waited for the plant to begin to die i read this was a sign the crop is ready instead the plant is flowering and growing vigorously again. Should I put them out? Should I wait? What should I do?
0: Hmm, I would probably pull them. Um, They probably re-sprouted because the top got broken off or eaten off or whatever happened to it. And um, they should be done. They should be ready to go. Your potatoes that you planted back in April would be harvestable in July, typically. I'm not sure how the quality would be if you left them in there to continue to develop. I don't know if they'd get much bigger uh, or anything like that. So my inclination would be to cut back on the watering and let the tops die down naturally, which is what should have happened, die down more at least, and then uh, then start harvesting them. That would be my inclination. If I had two barrels, I would do one where I'd harvest and the other one where I'd leave it and see what happens. But if you just have one, I would harvest.
1: And if it were me, I would I would prepare a second barrel and, and mm-hmm. carefully dig around a, a, a short ball with some roots in it, move it to the new barrel, and then dig the, the potatoes out that are underneath there and see if it keeps Give it going. a try.
0: Yeah. yeah, we have an interesting phenomenon here. We get people coming in looking for potatoes to start in their garden virtually year-round. It's a curiosity to me that people will be coming in in October, November looking for potatoes and coming in in February looking for potatoes, and coming in in early summer.
1: They're probably not the same people.
0: Well, sometimes they are. (laughs) All all three of those times work. The best results in this area come, in my opinion and from my experience and the feedback I've gotten from customers, is when you plant them February, February to early to mid-March, which is a hard time for nurseries to get certified seed potatoes could tell you the process I went through to try to get them this year, for example, because we're mostly ordering these from big growers up in Idaho, Washington. Mine came out of Indiana this year. And so the back and forth that I had with the supplier was, is it freezing there? Can you ship them? Oh, okay, it looks like you have a window next weekend. Go ahead and ship them. Then they arrived and somewhere on the way they got subjected to freezing weather. So about a third of our potatoes were damaged in transit and they gave us a credit for those. And that happens every year. That's what we go through because we need to get them here. We want to get them here in the early spring for people to plant and be harvesting now. It's planted in April, uh, should be harvesting now, planted in February, March, you could even be harvesting in June. And then a lot of people will then take some of those, replant them, for a late summer, early fall harvest of new potatoes. Just small potatoes when you do it that way because of the cycle of growth. And some people actually, apparently, plant them in the fall. And this last one was new, uh, was new to me. I didn't really understand coming around and harassing nurseries for certified seed potatoes in October, so finally I had to ask one of these old guys, it's always old guys, I had to ask one of these old guys, all right, tell me exactly what you're doing, because to my way of thinking, if you plant a potato in the fall, What's it gonna do? It's either gonna rot in the ground or it's gonna come up and freeze off or something. Oh well, yeah, they do come up, they, they do freeze off, You know, the frost will nip them, nips the tops. Well, you think about where they grow potatoes, frost nips the tops of potatoes all the time in most of those places. And then they just kind of go sort of dormant in the winter and they come up really early in the spring here. I mean, really in the winter rather than the spring because as soon as it warms up, they're the first thing that comes up in the garden and you can be harvesting those potatoes in April or May. And so this fall planting idea does work. I go online and I find people doing this in much colder climates where they plant them in beds in the fall, then bury the whole bed in leaves, which apparently are abundant then. Yep. And then the snow comes down and covers the whole bed and yep. they're in its lovely blanket out there. And I don't know when this whole thing resolves itself, but they're in there ready to go when the snow melts, the leaves disintegrate and the sun comes out and those potatoes come up from having planted the previous fall. This is all new to me, so I've never seen that kind of thing, but folks here actually do this as well. And it is true that potato plants are, you know, think about where they grow potatoes. They can take cool conditions, they can take cold conditions, they can take a little frost while they're growing. If they get nipped on the top, those pop right back up. But the classic time for planting tomatoes here, potatoes here, excuse me, is February to March, Okay to plant them later, but your yields will tend to be lighter and the, the potatoes themselves will tend to be smaller. We have the second whole planting season for them as well, the summer planting for Thanksgiving potatoes.
1: So it's interesting to me that you're saying uh, in spring, February and March right. is not right. spring back Technically, there. Technically, <laughs> no. <laughs> it's calendar, like, calendar-wise, winter. It's snow up to your eyebrows. It's you know. <laughs> well, I've
0: had people. I've had people ask, "What do you mean by spring?" You know, they've moved here, and what, when does spring begin here? Because you know, January the calendar 1st. Is March. March March 21st and you know by March 21st we're halfway into spring we've got our daffodils are done and the tulips are just getting going and so forth Um, so what we mean by spring from a gardening standpoint and also from a retail nursery standpoint Valentine's Day is kind of the beginning of our sunny gardening season and by March you're well into it and uh, so by the official calendar basis of spring we've been underway for several weeks uh, it just it comes on earlier here, so let's put it mildly. What have we got here? We well, uh, got uh, Jane
1: wrote back again. She's the one who lives uh, so high up at uh, two thousand altitude, two thousand yep. foot, and she says thanks for addressing this topic in your last two shows, and that's the peach leaf curl. I have one other yep. question is it to be expected that the twigs whose leaves are affected by peach leaf curl will not regrow fresh leaves when the blight is past? i see new leaves on new twigs and branches which are growing from the tips of the affected branches but none on the lower affected branches which are bare and rather brown see photo, she sent Sent a nice photo.
0: Yeah, the photo showed some smaller branches inside dying back, and yes, peach leaf curl, as well as brown rot, can cause damage to the wood, the softer wood part of the plant. You can also have those branches simply fading out because of shade from the upper foliage, so you do see that kind of interior dieback, and some of the pruning that you do this is a good time to get going on that. Pretty soon, we'll be talking more about summer pruning and upcoming shows. Would be to remove that wood, you know, if it's affected, if it's uh, infected wood, particularly brown rot on your apricots and plums. <coughs> excuse me, but also on you know peaches where they had leaf curl or brown rot or other diseases. There was a bad year here in the valley for brown rot, and that's why I mentioned those, even though they're not a common problem on peaches. They were on the apricots and the plums, and so we've had people dealing with that. As you do that summer pruning after the harvest, after the growth cycle is done, the month of August is when we do it here and into September, any branch that appears to be dying back that way, you might as well go ahead and either remove it, or in the case of the picture that she sent, it looks like you could cut back the part that is withered looking to sort of healthier looking wood a little further back and see if it breaks and grows there. So go ahead and remove some of that. Yes, what you're seeing is a normal phenomenon, a normal result of infection. And the fact that these branches are also now shaded by higher branches would be a factor as well. But one of the things we do when we prune is we remove diseased wood if possible, if practical. We remove infested wood that has borers, we remove diseased wood. So kind of the first thing we would do when we would walk up to a tree when we had a pruning service is look and see, are there any branches that broke that need to be cleaned up? Are there any branches that have any kind of borer infestation that's obvious, usually on the south or southwest side of the tree? Are there any branches that appear to have died back from whatever, the brown rot or the leaf curl? And we would take those out first. Then you can look at the tree and do any structural work or the size control pruning that we do in late summer. And again, summer pruning is a fairly new phenomenon. So if it's not in the reference books you have at hand, going online, looking at some of the great YouTube videos, Dave Wilson Nursery and the Sacramento Cooperative Extension folks have put out on that topic can be very helpful. I just had a conversation with someone who wants to summer prune her apricot. Very important, that's the only time we prune apricots. We don't do them in the winter time. We do them in the late summer because in the winter they're vulnerable to a disease that attacks through the pruning cuts. So we only prune them in the late summer. And she showed me a picture and really didn't even know where to begin. And I said, if I wanna keep this really simple, this tree was about 12 to 15 feet tall and about 12 to 15 feet across and she likes it looking like a tree. This is an important question. What do you want? What's your goal? You shape the tree. You're in control. How many times we say that, both in the winter and the late summer, the size of the tree is determined by how you prune it, not the rootstock, not any other magical factor, how you prune it and train it. If I were pruning this tree so that I'd be able to reach the apricots but it would still look like a tree, I'd bring it down and in about three feet all around. That was the simplest sentence I could come up with that explained what we would do. And yes, it looks like a a hedge pruning cut when you get done. You're pruning it like a fruit bush. Chuck Ingalls, a farm advisor, formerly from Davis, um, uh, who worked in the Sacramento Farm Advisor, would say, I want you to think of these as fruit bushes, not fruit trees. And it really worked because he would show a picture before and after. You'd just be getting up on your little short ladder with your loppers and cutting off three feet Overall, just kind of pruning it almost like a hedge. You don't have to do a spectacularly clean job of it. If you want to do some cleaning up on, on the other types of fruit trees, maybe that'll be easier when they're dormant in the winter. But all the pruning on your apricot and on your cherries, those are the other ones that are affected by winter pruning adversely, is done in the late summer. And so you just get up and a branch that's sticking out into the path, shorten that up. Anything that's getting up higher than you wish to climb and pick fruit, shorten it down. And in her case, and in, in most of the cases I've looked at, you're cutting it back about three feet down and in. You've already made a decision at some point in the early life of this tree what its shape is going to be. You've either taken out the center, so you have a low-branching tree, or you've used the modified central leader approach we talked about last week, so you have a little more tree-like look. But then you maintain the size with this late summer pruning. So if Lois has a plum tree that's producing too much and it's gotten 12 feet plus because those shoots just shoot for the sky, plums do that. They just grow like crazy, she can take off four feet all around. And just a pair of loppers will do it. You don't have to have a saw, you don't have to have a chainsaw, you don't have to have a degree in horticulture. This is really simple pruning. And my goal would be to have you able to do it all from the ground, because that means that in the long run, you'll be picking all your fruit from the ground. But if you want it to look more like a tree, as we discussed last week, having it a more of a landscape feature, all right, a stepladder. Let's, let's have you all confined to six foot step ladders two feet up on that, you know, two or three steps up on that, reaching up with some 18-inch loppers and just cutting off what you can reach at that point. This is work that can be done by the teenage kid that lives with you, by the husband that wants to prune things and doesn't know what he's doing. He can do this because he's not really going to hurt the tree as long as he just keeps in mind three feet in, three feet down.
1: So that was a excellent answer and very detailed. But there was a couple things in there that are jargon terms that I think might have confused oh, yeah. someone. When when you were talking about the the original question with the, the disease looking wood and you said go yeah. in there and cut it back to something that uh, you know looks good or whatever and then you said and see if it breaks. Now, what he means by that doesn't mean <laughs> see if it snaps in two. What he means is yes. if the buds break, which is a jargon term yeah. meaning that the the uh, the place in there where there could be a kind bud of. that could grow actually breaks. Well, the, grow. the That's place called breaking. Yeah. And then the right. other thing
0: we use the term break. We, we use the term break to mean begins to grow. And that's, uh, you're right that that's absolutely jargon because break sounds like what happens when you have too many peaches on the tree.
1: Especially uh, when you then go on and talk about broken branches. <laughs> right,
0: <laughs> yeah. thank okay. you for correcting so, that. Yeah. So
1: for me, for my plum tree, my wonderful, beautiful plum tree, um, every year I cut it back for any growth that grew this year. I mean that literally. And those, those switches are like yeah. six feet long. Yeah. Uh, one oh, year yeah. I didn't prune them. I ended up with switches. And and by that, I mean something that is no bigger than, than my thumb in diameter. Right. And it was like between 12 and 15 feet. I got some great, great fishing poles out of that.
0: They will. They're, and it depends on the rootstock they're on. That's one of the one factor there where the rootstock makes a difference. Is just how much that grows. Is it six feet or is it eight feet or is it three feet? But it doesn't doesn't control the ultimate size of the tree. It just controls how how quickly it gets there. Plums are notorious for that, and they make these long suckery type of growth that. Well, fruit eventually, if you happen to want that much fruit, but quite honestly, I am I know your tree is already giving you more than you could possibly use. So remembering that one of our other goals in this reduction of the size is to reduce fruit load. You know, we, we are not trying to get the maximum potential. As we often say here, you want a smaller number of larger, better quality fruit. If you want a bunch of fruit, you really want a bunch of varieties, not one tree producing its absolute maximum potential. I can't even really imagine what that would be with a plum grown to its full potential, but I do know that the one that was on our property when we bought the place produced about 2,000 by our rough grid, you know, look at it and guesstimate, about 2,000 fruit each year, and it was Santa Rosa. so. 1,895 of those just rotted on the ground because when they're ripe, they fall. <laughs> Not much you can do about it. We actually took that tree out because it had been trained in the traditional manner as a 15 by 15 foot tree with you know carefully chosen branches for maximum yield. The guy who we bought the place from just did it the way he thought fruit trees were supposed to be grown. Ultimately, we just gave up and, and took it out and planted another one that we shortened up and kept low branching and kept it so we could actually walk up and pick the fruit. It still produces more than we know what to do with. So reducing free fruit load is one of our goals of pruning, removing diseased wood, size control. Those are the three main things we do. There's an important bit of science here, which is if you ever go take a course in pomology, which is the study of fruit trees, they'll talk about the dormant cycles of these trees. We're talking about deciduous Stone fruits primarily here. Apple, uh, apricots, plums, nectarines, peaches, pluots, things like that. They flower very early. They set their fruit. They put on vigorous growth spring and early summer. The fruit ripens and they're done. And they go into a, a, a semi dormancy that uh, my pomology professor called quiescence. Quiescent just means quiet. It's just a, if you cut it back, a quiescent stone fruit, it won't sprout from the point where you cut to. If you cut it back in May to the exact same point, it'll sprout from there. It's still growing. It's still in the active growth cycle. I've noticed they're variable a little bit as to this. If you do your pruning in July, for example, which is a little early for actual quiescence to be happening, some things will sprout and some won't. So it doesn't come on exactly the same with every variety. By August, almost all of those that we're talking about, almost all the stone fruits, if you head them back, it'll just be headed back for the rest of the season. You've taken off. A quarter to half of the wood of the of the new growth and some even done some work on the inside this has a couple of advantages one is that they now use less water I mean it, it does doesn't need as much water because you remove some of the foliage the other is you get more sunlight in and around the plant so you if it's in your garden now the plants nearby will perk up and uh, you've you've done the work pretty much to keep the tree a small enough size that you can get at it and pick the fruit and you've probably reduced the fruit load somewhat, and with plums in particular. Uh, someone asked me, well, they were talking about the problems they're having on their peaches, and then we were talking about problems on nectarines, because things go wrong. Soft-fruited fruits, you know, apricots, they as they ripen, every every animal in the world likes to eat them, <laughs> there are disease problems. They said, well, God, this seems like a lot of work. What's easier, I just without even thinking, I said plums. I mean, you really can't go wrong with plums. Almost anywhere you're listening, there's probably a variety of plum that grows well. Their skins are a little tougher, which is handy. It means they hold up in the weather a little better. Uh, If they get injured, they don't immediately start to decay as, as nectarines do. You know, you get one little blemish on it, that whole side of the fruit is shot. So plums hold up well, they produce well, they're, they're a little bit better to hang on the tree in some cases, some, are, some varieties better than Santa Rosa. They yield almost no matter what you do. The only thing about them is they do produce more and more and more and more as the years go by to the point that you do what Lois is doing, which is you just prune them really hard to reduce fruit production and to keep it within picking range.
1: And the other thing you do is when you've gotten all of the neighbors who want to to come over and get their households plums and all of the folks from church and all of the folks from every place else you can possibly imagine, then some of your friends volunteer to come over and pick four boxes full of plums and set them out (laughs) in front so that the Davis Harvest will pick them up. And (laughs) I got a receipt for 100 pounds of plums donated to the folks who, you know, take them to people who need food. So even though the Davis harvest is not, um, they are not getting teams together to go out and harvest like they usually do because the teams are not all from the same household, so it's not safe. But if you can pick your excess fruit, call them up and they can come and. And get it from you and distribute it for you and and so you'll in the be Davis doing good. area that
0: in the Davis area that is whom?
1: Davis Harvest.
0: Davis Harvest. And there's probably Davis. a similar group wherever you're listening, people yeah. who, who help to connect abundant backyard production with those who need it.
1: Used to be called ben. senior gleaners.
0: I remember that, yeah. 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 But they're not all seniors anymore. There's some young people involved. Well then Escondido writes, hi, Don and Lois, huge fan of the show. We have an old, large grapefruit tree that produces abundantly, but the variety is unknown. And frankly, the fruit is not very good, small and quite bitter. I've attached a picture, if by chance you can identify it. Uh, Just for the rest of you, Escondido is an interior uh, San Diego County. And so it gets plenty warm in Escondido. uh, It is uh, where I took my driver's test when I was 16 years old. You'll enjoy this, Ben. We all took our driver's test in Escondido because there were no stoplights. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That was (laughs) sneaky, Don. (laughs)
0: That was a while ago, yeah. Uh, In looking closely at the trunk, I wonder if it's a rootstock sucker that has taken over, perhaps just planted by seed long ago by previous owners. I had the idea of taking advantage of the maturity and vigor of the tree and cutting back the branches close to the main trunk to graft on new citrus varieties. Is this possible? If so, when would be the best time to do it? How far back should I cut main branches? And are there special considerations if I wanted to graft several different varieties all at once, including non-grapefruit citrus? Thank you so much for all the wisdom best wishes to both of you from Ben in Escondido. Uh, thank you, Ben. Um, first thing, it's probably a marsh grapefruit because that was by far the most widely planted grapefruit in California for years and years and years and years. And we would sell marsh grapefruit up here where it's plenty hot. In Escondido, you get plenty of heat as well. But even with our heat, even with our long seasons, there was a pretty high bitterness component to marsh grapefruit. When I was doing some research for an article at one point, I found an amazing amount of research had been done on the bitterness content of different types of citrus. The Naringin, which is the compound in citrus that makes them taste bitter to most people. Not all people, some people don't actually taste that all that much. And the Naringin content is, it's it's the reason that if you juice certain kinds of citrus and you don't drink them right away, store them in the refrigerator for a few days, the fruit, the, the juice gets bitter. Uh, it contains anywhere from 2%, 3% naringin, and that is expressed as the juice sits. And so some citrus are good for juicing and because the juice stores, and others are not good at all for juicing because they get bitter right away, and it gets worse as the as the juice stores. The Valencia orange contains no naringin, so it's the whole basis of our orange juice industry. Naval oranges contain a little bit, so you can juice them, and they're delicious if you juice them and drink it right away. But if you store it, you get that slight off flavor. Well, the highest Naringian content of any of the commercial varieties they tested was the marsh grapefruit. It is, expected, it is expected to be bitter. People, it's actually part of the flavor that people expect with a marsh grapefruit. But when marsh grapefruit is grown in the famous Rio Grande Valley or parts of Arizona, where the season literally begins in February and it's hot from there through November, they get the heat input, they get the sun input, It may be bitter, but it's masked by the extremely high sugar content. And they are justly proud of the fact that their grapefruit have the best flavor in the world because of that long, long, long growing season. So it may be bitter, but one thing people learned many, many, many years ago is you can mask bitterness with sugar or even better with salt. So my grandfather from Oklahoma used to salt his grapefruit, which I would watch him do. And he would chuckle with his dry laugh saying uh, And we explained to me that it was done because the fruit was bitter and he would just salt it and that would take care of the of the bitterness lo and behold yes researchers looked into that and in fact it does work so if you've got bitter fruit and like a grapefruit in your backyard it's a marsh and you don't want to rip it out you want to go ahead and eat it well just do like granddaddy did salt the fruit right before you eat it (laughs) and he he was absolutely as usual granddaddy was right um, I don't think you're gonna get good flavor on this marsh in Escondido without doing all that, but yes, you can graft almost any variety of citrus. There are some exceptions. Some citrus are not compatible on others. and There's information about that out there. Uh, actually, a great source of information on that exact topic is the California Rare Fruit Growers Group, California Rare Fruit Growers, C-R-F-G, and it has statewide chap- or different chapters in different parts of the state. The Sacramento area chapter is very active. There's an active chapter where you are, and most of them are active on Facebook, as well as at least until the COVID-19 having frequent meetings in which they would do scion exchanges. Uh, So there's folks that you can chat with about in your area about what are the best grapefruit or similar types of fruits for you, almost any other grapefruit almost any newer grapefruit hybrid is gonna be sweeter and less bitter than the Marsh. It may not have the richness of flavor that Marsh was famous for, but it'll be, uh, it won't have that disagreeable bitterness. Uh, there are some hybrids that are just amazing, and most of us are now selling Oro Blanco, which you've probably seen in the grocery store. Oro Blanco is actually grapefruit Pumelo hybrid. The Pumelos don't have the Naringin content, so they're sweet, sweet and mild. Now, the grapefruit parentage gives the depth of flavor that you're expecting in a grapefruit. Oroblanco is being sold as a grapefruit, but it's actually a hybrid. And in most parts of the state, it's a better alternative than the Marsh grapefruit if you're after something with a sweeter flavor, as I say, a little little milder, but but enough enough richness of flavor that you'll consider it to be a suitable grapefruit. There's others, cocktail, uh, the red grapefruits, which are out there, which are also very good. Uh, but yes, you can graft on as to whether everything will be compatible. No, I don't think your Kumquat's gonna graft on to your grapefruit, but within the general groups, pumalos and grapefruits should all be compatible and some of the others you'll need to find out about. So CRFG.org, CRFG, California Rare Fruit Growers, and look for them on Facebook.
1: So I was wondering if I am planting things in pots as, as I do and they're going to be in the full sun as they are, does it make a difference whether I planted it in a, a wooden barrel or a ceramic pot or a you know, metal can? Does it make any difference? In,
0: in theory, in theory, everything that isn't glazed uh, is going to breathe and lose water faster. And in theory, uh, uh plastic pots will hold water better than will um, clay pots, for example, but by far the biggest factor, the overriding factor, the overwhelming factor, other than climate, the fact that where you live, it's 93 degrees, average high temperature, 10% humidity in the afternoon. That's the big factor in how often you'll water it, but the soil you chose makes more difference, in my opinion, than the type of container you chose. The soil volume and the soil constituents, what the soil is made out of. And so I've been experimenting this year, for example, with peppers, all kinds of different peppers and eggplants in uh, 10 inch, two gallon, three gallon and five gallon containers. And I'm finding that what makes the most difference in how often they need water. We're in July now, and some of them are needing water every day, all in the same conditions. They're actually, some are in a greenhouse and some are not. I'm kind of doing some, some primitive replicates of this experiment. Uh, what makes the most difference in how often they need water is the quality of the soil that I put them into. Regular potting soil, they're needing water every day, no question. I get home at the end of the day, they need water. They're fine, they've just wilted, but they need water every day. When I use these special high-quality potting soils formulated for cannabis growers, which have more peat moss and more compost in them, which retains more moisture, those can go two days. So the pot itself, I've used some fiber pots, you've seen those, they've pressed paper type pots, breathe like crazy. I don't have any in clay pots, but I have them in some in plastic pots and all these different sizes. That doesn't make as much difference as the soil that you chose. And we know this actually from something we've talked about before, the study I found a while ago, which compared the water retaining capacity, water holding potential of all these different soil mixes, 25 or so different potting soils study in Australia. They ranged from retaining 20% of the water that was applied to retaining 90% of the water that was applied. And uh, that range was astonishing. That tells you that you have no idea when you buy a bag of potting soil if you've never used that brand before. If you put on two gallons of water, you don't know whether it's gonna retain a gallon of that, a quart of it, or a gallon and a half of it. And that's gonna make more difference by far in how often you have to water and, and how you're gonna manage it than What's what kind of container it's in or any other factor. And in our climate, where it's so dry that things typically need water every day in containers, that's going to make a huge difference. But we noticed in that study, and I don't, I don't have the brands in front of me, but I can guess which ones and which sti- styles are going to work better because of what's in them, uh, the average was about 40 to 50 percent of the water was retained. Okay, as long as we know that and all of our plants are in the same kind of soil, then we know that they're all going to dry out at about the same pace, depending on how big they are and where they are, but, but that they'll be fairly similar. But if you happen to see some potting soil on sale, it's a brand you're not familiar with, and it looks more chunkier, or there's more shavings type stuff in there, the water just seems to run right through it, you know, it's probably only holding maybe 20 or 30 percent of the moisture that you're applying. So you're not getting your money's worth when you say, when you try to save on your potting. soil. I say this all the time, you really get what you pay for. And the newer ones, the fancier ones, the premium ones tend to have either more peat moss or coir, which retain moisture and more fully composted compost, which helps retain moisture, less bark, less of the things that drains super fast. And it does have advantages when you're growing, annual crops, vegetables, cannabis, flowers, whatever it is in the summer in Sacramento Valley or any place that's similarly hot and dry. So the type of container makes less difference than the soil. The other thing that makes more difference by far is the size of the container. If I see someone buying a tomato and they wanna know what kind of pot to put it in, if it's not going into a cubic foot of soil, it's just gonna be a real challenge for them to, to grow. A cubic foot of soil is a seven to 10 gallon container. A uh, 15-gallon would be even better, but I don't know if everybody wants to devote one and a half cubic feet of potting soil in a 15-gallon container to one tomato. But the smaller it is, the more challenging it's going to be for you to keep that water in our hot, dry climate.
1: Here we have another question. This is from Anjali. doesn't say where they're from, but uh, they sent pictures. And they're, cool. ooh, they're, ooh, <laughs> pictures. Ooh, Don! <laughs> I found, I, really like this one. <laughs> I found this in my raised bed I took the first photo the second one is off of Google I think it is the same critter
0: thing <laughs> I am
1: just getting used to our beneficial earthworms every time I see them I keep chanting good for the soil good for the soil <laughs> That's a great they reaction to, to, to seeing earthworms though. but this weird-headed one is really really, really ugly. <laughs> Should I be worried? I read that these are I read that these are shovel-headed worms and that they will destroy earthworms. I'm not supposed to cut them either because they multiply that way. So far I've only found one worm. Where does this come from yeah. In the soil, is and the soil, plants the bed is three years old, and I just had compost on top every season. Please help me.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I encountered one of these when I was about 14. I had the greenhouse. Yeah, I started early. My dad and I built a greenhouse, and I filled it up with stuff, and I'm out there late at night because the greenhouse was off of my bedroom, so I could go out there whenever I wanted to. And uh, there was this thing crawling across my flagstone path that we had put in. And it is, my mother called it, my mother was a biologist, just so you know, she was a marine biologist, but fundamentally any living organism fascinated her. And so her reaction was, ooh, cool, what is it? Let's figure that out, rather than, oh my God, let's kill it. And it is, she called it a shovel-headed slug. It's not a slug, it's also not a worm. She, uh, the name hammerhead worm is what you do find on Wikipedia, and uh, it is a very strange looking thing. It is long and slimy and toxic, by the way, just for the record, and the head looks like a a hammerhead, like a hammerhead shark, if you can visualize that. So hammerhead worm, or it's a planaria. So any of you who have studied planaria know this amazingly cool fact that that you can tell my background here, (laughs) amazingly cool fact that if you cut it in half, now you have two planaria. They actually will will just you know turn into two four, six, how many do you want? Go ahead and chop it up. So it does not work as as noted to chop it up. That just makes more of them. And it does, in fact, feed on earthworms. On the plus side, I believe many species also feed on mollusks, which are snails or slugs. So it's beneficial in that sense, but predatory in the other sense. Little side note, a significant number of the worms you're finding in your garden are actually not native. Uh, they're introduced as well. They're all good guys, but they're, they're, you know, they're not, it's not like it's gonna decimate the native population. A lot of them are, have, have already been displaced by these other worms that are out there. I've only ever seen a couple of these, and I've been gardening for a really long time, and I go out at night all the time to look at my garden. So if I found a bunch of them, I'd be concerned about the worm population. Finding one, that's just another interesting thing that's going on in your garden. I wouldn't worry too much about it. But where did it come from, part? These are notorious greenhouse pests. And so uh, I saw mine in my greenhouse. They love the environment of a greenhouse. It's moist all the time. And like a slug or a snail, they need a moist surface to crawl over. And then they crawl along and they encounter an earthworm. They kind of grotesquely, uh, well, anyway, they essentially dissolve it and eat it. Um, That's all interesting and grotesque, but I wouldn't worry about finding one. It's just another interesting thing that's going on out in your yard. It's when we find, let's say if you found a whole bunch of them, well, that would be bad, obviously, because they might be doing damage to the earthworm population. I have observed and also read, because we happen to have, again, a land-grant college with agricultural sciences uh, in Davis, and one of my customers is an earthworm expert, actually, that Uh, Earthworm populations are amazingly resilient. You can decimate them by a variety of methods, including short-term pesticides usage and things like that, and they tend to bounce back very readily if their habitat is present. What gets them, what what diminishes their population is very dry conditions and nothing to live on. So if things are baked rock hard and dry, you won't have a lot of earthworms. You take a bunch of leaves and pile them up in that spot and start watering them, miraculously they move back into that area. They're around, they're nearby, this planaria, shovel-headed slug, hammerhead worm, whatever you want to call it, is eating some of them and going about its business and, and for the most part you probably wouldn't notice it, but the answer to your question, where did it come from? Somebody's greenhouse that you bought a plant from most likely was the original source of it. And yes, it's out there and it's going to be eating some stuff, but I don't think I would be concerned about it in terms of any long-term effect on the beneficials in your garden. This is true of a lot of things you find. I mean, I'll find um, leaf-footed bugs out in my garden. I think, well, one or two, okay, no big deal. If I find hundreds of them on my pomegranate, then I might take action. In the case of a planaria, I'm not quite sure what action to recommend, short of flushing it down the toilet, because I think, and that's not such a great idea either, I imagine, (laughs) but I think chopping it up isn't going to work. The only thing I can think of would be to desiccate it somehow, since it does require moisture. So you figure out how you're going to desiccate a planaria and let us know. But my guess is if you just ignore it, let it go on its way, sacrifice a few earthworms for the balance of nature going on in your yard, that's your best answer. You've been listening to The Davis Garden Show with Don Shore
1: and Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California.